Welcome again to our study in the Epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We are beginning chapter 4 in this session and looking to take the first three verses. So, uh, glad you're here with us, and let's have prayer together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it abides forever by your sovereign uh, control, that you have maintained it for us. We thank you, Lord, for your for your love for us and for your care for us and giving us your word that we can have it even in our own language as well as in the languages in which it was originally written. And we are grateful for that, Lord, for your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we know that we have the truth of you and the truth about ourselves and about our Savior Yeshua and Yeruch HaKodesh and the whole history of how you have uh, come into the world to bring about your purposes. We thank you for that, Lord, and we bless you. We pray, Father, that you would bless our time tonight as we study these verses and that the truth of it would be clearly made known to us that we might apply it by the work of your Spirit to our lives and to the lives of those that we have opportunity to uh, instruct as well as to encourage and so forth. So we trust you for these things and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay, I am reading uh, from the uh, ESV today, and we're starting chapter 4, the final chapter of this epistle to the Philippians. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudodia, and I entreat Suntake to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Messiah Yeshua. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you alone. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus 
the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Messiah Yeshua. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Messiah Yeshua. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Yeshua Messiah be with your spirit. Okay, well, that's an interesting translation. And uh, uh, it's it's not as even as the ESV usually is. But, uh, yeah, it's it's good. Okay, we're in chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Well, obviously, the chapter opens with the word therefore, hosta in the Greek. It indicates that Paul is emphasizing consequences from what he has emphasized in the preceding chapter. In other words, he's taught things in chapter 3 that now he's seeking to apply. How do these apply to us? What are the consequences of learning the truth that God gave Paul uh, to write in chapter 3 in the previous chapter? How is it applying then in our lives? Well, as a result, some commentators think this opening verse of chapter 4 would better be placed as the final verse of chapter 3. Because he says, Therefore, my beloved, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. In other words, it sounds like it's a summary of what he has been teaching us in the previous chapter. However, our verse appears to function both as a fitting conclusion of Paul's exhortations in chapter 3, as well as an obvious transition to his final exhortations in this chapter in chapter 4. So I take it as a bridge. And so you'll see that there are actually some of the English translations that put it with chapter 3, and the majority of them put it with chapter 4. Our verse surely does emphasize the need to put into practice what Paul has taught and emphasized in the previous contexts, but also portrays his own deep desire as an apostle of Yeshua that the believers who comprise the community of Philippi would follow his divinely ordained words by putting into practice the love that should characterize the family of God. This is a very interesting thing, I think, as we come to this final chapter of uh, Philippians. And it is, once again, Paul's emphasis upon the fact that what we learn by way of the truth, we have not sufficiently learned it if we don't live it out. And it seems that every community of believers, ancient as well as in our times, modern times, we all struggle with how best to be together and to help one another and to fulfill the commandments of the Lord and of our Savior Yeshua as he gives them to us and of Paul and the other apostles as they wrote and gave us the means of understanding how we are to, uh, how we are to live out our lives within the context of community, bearing each other's burdens, helping one another, caring for each other, praying for each other, and ultimately, how to get along with one another. And so this is the part that he begins with in chapter 4, is this issue of schisms within the local assembly. How do we keep that from not only happening, but from snowballing into all kinds of difficulties? 
He starts out by calling them my beloved brethren. Now we have to be careful here. The term brethren, which is the word adelphoi in the Greek, begins the long series of words Paul chooses to express his true affection for the believing community at Philippi. The plural form can refer to both male and female as part of a specific group. For instance, Yeshua uses the same word, adelphoi, adelphos, to denote anyone who is devoted to him or who are his disciples. And I give you that in the footnote there in Matthew 12:50, Mark 3:35, and so forth. In the apostolic scriptures, therefore, the Greek plural adelphoi, which is oftentimes translated brethren, can be used to denote a mixed company of men and women who have a common heritage, that is, specifically to having been born again through faith in Yeshua. So when he talks about brethren, my beloved brethren, he's not excluding the women. He's including them, and this is typical of the Koine Greek in which the scriptures, the apostolic scriptures are written. It means family members in when it's being used in a wider context. Now, in describing his own relationship to the Philippian community, Paul begins a line of affectionate terms with beloved agapetos. Now, we're familiar with the noun agape, the whole idea of a love that is not self centered, but is others centered. And he uses that term. He begins with this term beloved, a word he uses to denote a community of elect and beloved brothers and sisters. Now this is particularly true of believers because all who have come to faith in Yeshua are loved by the Lord, for he has forever adopted them into his family as his own sons and daughters. It is this close and eternal relationship that inevitably shapes the very life of all who truly know God as their Heavenly Father. Why would the Scriptures be using the metaphor of being born again? And why is God referred to as the Father? Why is there a new birth? What does that mean? We have a new relationship. And what is that relationship? It doesn't sever the relationship that we have in this world in our physical uh, families. But it reminds us that there is a greater relationship, and that is to be very much children with God as Father, with Yeshua as our Master and Lord, and our Savior. We have come into a family relationship. And in that family relationship, we have, to one extent, a total equality. Why? Because each one has the same access to the Father, has the same promise of life, and has the same mission in life, which is what? To honor Him, to live our lives for Him. So we as children of the Lord have a new kind of renewed uh, emphasis in who we are and what our mission in life is. He says, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see. Now, the words to see uh, are added by the New American Standard Bible, by the Net Bible and CEV and other English Bibles, is actually not in the Greek. And so some would just translate it, whom I long for. It is added by these English translations as a way of expressing a possible meaning of the Greek epipothetos, a word that is found only here in the Apostolic Scriptures, and carries the sense of to being earnestly desired, longed for, or desired. 
So what did he long for? He longed for them. When he says, whom I long for, or who I long to see, or however you want to fill out that phrase, in the Greek it just says, of whom I long, I, I hope for, I, I wait for, however you want to uh, uh, emphasize that word. It means that he desperately wants to see those to whom he is writing, growing in their ability to love the Lord, to love one another, and to be true witnesses in this world, in their location. He says, my joy and my crown. Paul's primary sense in longing for them is no doubt to express his deep desire that the believing community in Philippi would grow in spiritual maturity and thus be more and more enabled to help and care for each other and thus to be a light for Yeshua in their region. There is something very important in that reality. The apostle, his primary goal, his primary hope and desire, the very thing that he worked most diligently towards, was not that necessarily the community would grow to a huge number of people. Now, that may be the result of everything that's good, but his primary goal is that they would be a light for Yeshua in their region. That they, that the outsiders, those who were unbelievers, would look at this community and see within the community something that was greatly desired. How they cared for one another, how they loved each other, how they were honest with each other and helped each other in very true and real ways, life-giving ways. Well, when a community acts in that way, as unto the Lord, seeking to please the Lord, in doing so they would prove the success of Paul's own efforts on their behalf, even as a crown, a stephanos, was given to the one who won the race in the ancient Olympic races. In other words, Paul says, you are my joy and my crown. What is the metaphor there? It isn't the crown of a king. It doesn't mean to have rule over others. It was taken exactly from the Greek games, from the Greek Olympics. When the runner came across the finish line as, as the first, as the winner, there was a wreath that was made out of olive leaves and twigs and so forth that was put upon his head as the one who had won the race. And Paul saying, Is my efforts, are my efforts uh, toward you in this group in Philippi? Has he done well? Has he run the race the way God intended him to? When the uh, believers in Philippi come together and function as God intends them to, this will prove that Paul's work was right and good, that God had used his efforts, that he had run and won the, the race. That's what he means by even as a crown was given to the one who won the race in the ancient Olympic races. Thus Paul again ex expresses his desire to be successful as Yeshua's emissary to the Philippian community by their persevering and growing in their walk of faith. It was in the spiritual strength and success of the communities to which he had ministered that would enable Paul to know that he had not run in vain, as he says in chapter 2, verse 16 of Philippians, but also he makes a comment similarly to, to that in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. Now, this needs to be uh, really emphasized for people who are in leadership within the communities. Leaders must 
in every way put away the idea of having emphasis put upon themselves. Growing somehow in, in some special way to be viewed by outsiders as, wow, this fellow or this, these people must really be wonderful, these leaders, because the, the place is growing in leaps and bounds. Everybody's talking about it. It's something really good is going on there. And it, and it, and it reflects upon the leadership. No. The leadership want to defect all of that to shine upon Yeshua. It's Yeshua who must receive the rewards the accolades, the hand-clapping, the awe and the worship. And that's something that Paul is, is giving us a good lesson here. Any of us who are leaders in communities need to maintain the idea that we are pointing everyone to the Lord and that as we do better in our communities, as we get along together, as we help each other, and as we genuinely serve one another in the love of the Lord and for His glory, then He will be glorified. And outsiders will see that there's something different about this community. They love one another. They care for each other. They're able to get along with each other. What is it that they have? And that something is a true worship and honoring of Yeshua, who is our Savior, our Lord, our Messiah and King. So Paul goes on to say, In this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul teaches us here that communities of believers will face attack from the enemy and the world, even as Yeshua himself taught his disciples. He says in John 16:33, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. This is why he admonishes his readers and us to stand firm in the Lord, meaning to persevere in one's faith in the Lord, and to gain strength in combating the influences of the world and the attacks of the enemy. Such attacks come from three sources. If we can sum them up all, obviously there are many, but we can sum them perhaps under these three headings. The fallen world, that is the unbelieving world, the sinful nature, our own sinful nature, and the enemy himself, Satan. How do we maintain the unity of our faith in the bonds of peace, we do so by combating these three main elements, the fallen world, the sinful nature, and the enemy who is Satan. First, the unbelieving world or society seeks to allure the follower of Yeshua with its enticements to pleasure, worldly success, and acceptance by the many. But the scriptures are very strong in this regard. We read in James 4.4, 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, what does it mean to be a friend of the world or friendship with the world? It means to long to have what the world is offering and to give oneself in our energies, in our time, in our talents, uh, whatever it may be, to gain what is something of the world and not something that God approves of or is blessed by. Friendship with the world makes himself an enemy of God. And John says in his first epistle, Do not love the world for the things in the world. What does it mean to love the world? It means to want what the world has, which is other than what God intends. 
What is the primary thing of the world to love oneself? You say, well, there's all kinds of people who, you know, who aren't believers, who help the poor and so forth and so on. Well, okay, uh, my question is, do they really help the poor? Helping the poor to remain poor by giving them something that they would otherwise need to work for is not necessarily helping them. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe there are people who genuinely deserve and need help. And we are good when we do that. But we do it with the Lord in mind. We do it for the Lord's glory. Not so that the neighbors will see what wonderful people we are. Or so that, so that we can go around patting ourselves on the back, so to speak. No. To love the world is not to love the Father. Second, even though the child of God has exercised true saving faith, the scriptures are clear that the sinful nature remains. That is, the flesh the fallen nature, or the yet-to-be-redeemed humanness that we all have. It is therefore the ongoing desire of the true child of God to more and more win victory over the sinful inclinations and desires, and to please the Lord by living out the ways of righteousness in all areas of our lives. Remember the words of Yeshua in Matthew 26:41: Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. How do we do that? How do we become strong against the pull of, of sin, the pull of the sinful nature? Well, it is by constantly recognizing that we have this tendency within us and to put it to death over and over again and to recognize that as we more and more live unto the Lord, and put to death the deeds of the flesh, we are proving ourselves to be true children of God. Well, Paul wrote this about his own battle against the flesh. He says, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Yeshua Messiah our Lord. So then... On the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand with my flesh, the law of sin. What does that mean? We have to control and put to death that part of us that would tend to do things that we know God hates. Well, it's just like a diet. <laughs> when you want to be healthy and the uh, reality is, is that your health has been compromised because of bad eating... Uh, when you begin to move towards saying, I'm not going to eat that, I'm going to eat what's good for me, there's constantly this pull to say, oh, that would taste so good. Why don't I have some more of that? And what do we have to say? No, I can't do that and have health at the same time. We need to do the same thing in a spiritual way. What do we feed ourselves upon? Do we feed ourselves upon the Word of God? Do we see, feed ourselves upon the community with other believers? Do we help and, and encourage one another? What is our time of prayer like? How often do we have the Word of God in our hearts and our minds? How do we seek the Lord on a regular and continual basis to live in accordance with what He wants and not to be sidetracked by the things of the world or our own sinful flesh? There is a selfishness which has to be put to death and given over entirely to the Lord to do what He wants and to do it His way. 
The third source, the enemy of God and all of those whom he redeems unto himself, is Satan and his demonic forces. One of his primary strategies is to cloak his evil ways in the garb of neutrality or cultural acceptance. If everyone is doing it, the believer who is weak in faith or untaught from the scriptures may naturally presume it must be okay. We could just go on and on about this, couldn't we? I mean, I'm sure you all have uh, things that you could uh, add to this. Uh, well, one of them is modesty. In our world, and in the ancient world, it was the same way. The typical thing in the culture was simply that, well, the uh, the, the dress became more, uh, more and more uh, carnal, more and more alluring, and so forth and so on. And uh, this is happening, of course, in our society. What used to be considered just, no, uh, totally inappropriate, uh, pretty much across the board, is now considered to be, oh, that's just the way it is. Well, that's just an illustration that I'm using. It's our, our culture can make things appear as though um, it's okay. When God says, no, it's not okay. You can't have the things of the world characterizing your life and think that you're going to be able to stand for the truth when the Lord calls you to stand for it or to live it out as he calls you to do continually. But we know that the enemy wants to mask the testimony of a true believer and that this creates what must be reckoned as a true war against the influences and schemes of the devil. So Peter teaches us, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So we need to take seriously. What is it that we spend our time mostly meditating upon? Granted, if you're working in the everyday world, like many of us do, then you're going to be with unbelievers during the workaday world. You're going to see things and hear things and so forth. But when you have the opportunity, where do you spend your time in terms of meditation, in terms of what do you put into your mind through the reading of the Word? How about the utter necessity of regularly being in contact with other believers? This is why the scriptures say, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the custom of some. Why? Because being together with other believers is part of what God has given us to build our strength in faith. And if we're not with other believers, if we're not worshiping together, if we're not helping one another and caring for each other and praying for each other and listening to the word of God together and then discussing how this fits into our own personal lives, if we don't have that, there's a huge gap that makes us weak when it comes to walking in this world as God intends. Once again, Paul refers to those within the believing community at Philippi as beloved. The beloved ones, agapetoi, expressing the enduring love and the commitment such love fosters between believers in a given community of faith. Indeed, even when difficulties arise within a local community of believers, if the ways of true love and forgiveness are exercised, reconciliation and growth will ensue. I don't think there is a community that exists that haven't had times of 
of uh, division and people not being able to get along with each other and, and leaving and so forth and so on, going somewhere else. This is unfortunately typical of our fallen world. But this is precisely what Paul is teaching against. And it appears clearly that in uh, in Philippi, in the community there, there was a division, as we read in uh, verse 2. I urge Euodia and I urge Suntica to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, I'll stop and say, you, you say, well, the, the English says S-Y-N and T-Y. Well, in in the uh, Greek, it's actually a a upsilon. It's a it's a U sound. U. Zuntuke. And so it's usually pronounced syntike, but uh, that's because of the way it's being transliterated in the English. Here Paul addresses his words directly to two women in the community at Philippi, Eudea and Syntyche, who apparently were involved in a dispute with each other, a dispute that may likewise have caused people within the community to take sides and thus enlarge the dispute within the entire community. Isn't that oftentimes the way it is? Now, we, we learn as we go along here that these two women were uh, part of the group that uh, Paul uh, worked with when he was in Philippi and undoubtedly uh, left them along with others, these two women along with other men and so forth, to be kind of the leadership team in that community. And now... These two ladies have a falling out of some sort. We don't know exactly what it is. But as a result of that, because they were those who undoubtedly, I would say, and I know there's division on this, but I would say they were primarily in charge of helping the women uh, in the community to lead and help find help for women in the community. Since they could not uh, get along suddenly, and we don't know exactly why, uh, it began to divide the community between the two of them. We're not told the essence of the dispute, but it was serious enough for Paul to mention them by name in the letter he was writing to the community at large. Judea and Suntuke are names found in non-biblical literature from the first century of the Common Era. In other words, they're not they they were they were somewhat common names. Other non-biblical uh, texts have uh, note these names as well. Roughly, the meaning of the names are success. That's Yodia uh, and Lucky Suntike. Uh, though their exact identities are not known, nor is the matter of their dispute disclosed by Paul. So, uh, <laughs> one was successful, one was lucky, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, we don't know. Maybe they were just common names and weren't really too concerned about what the meaning was. It seems obvious by the context, however that whatever was the cause of their dispute, it had become something widely known within the community, and had caused some to take sides with one or the other, thereby causing a wider discord amongst the community as a whole. We've all experienced this. I know we have. There's people that are good friends with one person, others that are good friends with another person. Those two people have some kind of a difficulty together, and all of a sudden there becomes a division. And how does that usually come about? It comes about by people talking to other people. And we should just call it what it is, gossip. Is that really that which causes such great trouble within communities? And the answer is yes. How do we overcome that? We have to dedicate ourselves not to talk with one another by putting someone else down. 
when someone comes and says, uh, you know, starts doing that, we need to stop them and say, no, wait, no, I wouldn't want somebody talking about me that way. If you have an issue, go talk with that person. Go talk directly with them. Don't go talking with others. It only causes the disease to spread. Well, what we do know about these two is that according to verse 3 of our chapter, they were in some way helpers for Paul's work of spreading the gospel message to the people in Philippi. I think undoubtedly they were those who were uh, had a, a very good influence upon uh, women who were interested in the gospel and wanted to know what this, uh, this Yeshua movement was and so forth. In this regard, Paul uses the verb parakaleo, to encourage, to appeal to, which is more of a request rather than a command. He's appealing to them. He's not commanding them, showing us how Paul employed a soft approach to these two women rather than addressing them in a strong authoritarian manner. He doesn't come to them and say, now I'm in charge, here's what you must do. No. What does he say? He says, he, he, he implores them, he asks them, he encourages them, he appeals to them. Moreover, in the Greek, the words I encourage, for which the NESB has urge, are repeated for each of the two women he addresses. In other words, he says, I encourage you, Yodia, and I encourage you, Suntuka. So, okay, he's talking to each of them individually. They're repeated for each, each of the names in the Greek. This once again shows the wisdom of Paul in seeking to gain a good outcome to his request, for his words await their response rather than demanding their compliance. This is a good lesson for any of us who are in any role of leadership. Rather than thinking that we can simply be in charge and, and lay down the law, we need to deal with people in terms of their understanding and of their willingness to consider and make a response. That's the first step. Now, if that first step doesn't work, then, of course, we have to take other measures. But I think Paul is a wonderful example here. He has all the power. He's an authority. He's an apostle of Yeshua. And yet he comes to them and encourages them to get things settled, to make things right. Literally, he says, to live in harmony. Well, that's the NASB translation. The Greek makes it clear as to the core intent of Paul's request, literally to have the same way of thinking in the Lord. Um, this differs from the sense of live in harmony in the Lord, at least as we understand the word harmony, as the NASB has it. To have the same way of thinking in the Lord essentially means to discover and agree with that which pleases the Lord. Often when we think of being in harmony with one another, we picture the need to give and take, that is, to be willing to give up our perspective in order to be in harmony with someone else's point of view. And of course, that is often the case. But what Paul is carefully urging these two women to do is to agree on the very basis of unity within the body of Messiah. And this is first and foremost to discover what the will of the Lord is, and then willingly and joyfully to submit to his will. Did they believe that Paul was sent by Yeshua himself? Then they ought to take Paul's words as what Yeshua intends. So it's not giving in to the other person. That kind of is what I understand harmony to, to, to mean. No, it means to come to the truth and both agree to live in accordance with that truth. 
And in the earlier part of this letter, Paul has given an excellent picture of the suffering love of Yeshua on the cross, chapter 2, 1 through 11, and how this should be a focal point for all who are committed to walking in his footsteps. So that's what I mean by they already have heard from Paul what it is to be like Yeshua, to take his viewpoint. It ought to be the goal of every believer to have the mind of Yeshua as the goal for all of life's decisions. What would Yeshua have me do? What do I see in Yeshua's life that teaches me what I should do in this situation? In contrast, Paul has also described the opposite, which is to have one's mind set upon earthly things, in chapter 3, verse 2, and 17 through 21, if you remember our study in the past of chapter 3. Those things which are contrary to the true citizenship of every believer, which is ultimately to live as citizens of heaven. He outlines those things which have to be discarded and not brought into our lives. And so here he's saying the same thing of these two ladies, that they need to adjust their decisions on the basis of what they know is true. And in that, learn how to love one another, how to forgive each other, and how to help one another. It is clear that what is at the root of dissension and division within the local gathering of believers, the ecclesia, is either a willful ignorance of the biblical truths which are foundational for maintaining unity within the body of Messiah, or an unwillingness to conform and submit to that which one knows to be God's will for honoring him and loving each other in the context of the believing community. Well, that's nothing you haven't heard before, but I just hope it's a reminder. How intent are we upon knowing God's word and making it our practice? If we do that, if we commit ourselves to that, and if we're willing to humble ourselves before one another and discover where we have erred and then make it right, this is the very means of keeping the community growing in those things which are most important and helping one another and in that being a light in the world in which we live. He says, indeed, true companion. Now, who is he talking to? (laughs) I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul begins by stating, indeed. Nay, a word that can carry the meaning, yes, certainly, indeed, it's true that, and so forth. And in the context of this verse is used to emphasize that Paul is requesting the direct intervention by someone he refers to as his true companion. Now, I've given you the Greek there, but which more woodenly is translated yoke fellow? Well, what's a yoke fellow? Well, if you've ever seen a, a, a pair of oxen that are yoked together and they're pulling um, some kind of uh, an implement or something, you understand. They One doesn't go one way and the other the other way. The yoke maintains them in the same direction, and they pull in the same direction, and therefore double their power. Well, that's what he means when he says, my true companion, because he uses the word yoke, my yoke fellow. In other words, we're working together. Now, who this is, we're not sure. But uh, this is another thing that we see in Paul and throughout the apostolic scriptures. We never see someone all by himself doing God's work. We always see them working together. There's, Paul is always with Timothy, or he's with this gentleman, whoever that would be. We'll have some suggestions. But um, there's always sending out in twos. They never are sent out by themselves. 
This is the pattern of the scriptures, but it's because it is what works. Two are far better than just twice, one. Because they help one another, they build each other up, they submit to one another, and they gain wisdom by the two of them or more uh, consulting on what would the Lord have us to do at this particular junction and so forth. So this clearly portrays the person as having been closely and substantially bound together with Paul's mission to Philippi, whoever this person is, the one that he calls my yoke fellow. The first and obvious question is the identity of the one whom Paul regards as his yoke fellow. Nothing in the immediate context nor in the epistle as a whole gives us the clear and unequivocal answer to this question. In fact, we can read Acts, we can read everything that we know of, and there's nothing that tells us exactly who this might be. Some of the commentators believe it must be Luke, since he traveled with Paul and was with him in Philippi. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, writes, Of the others who are available, the most likely candidate is Luke. Two things make this plausible, if one also considers Luke as the most likely person to be identified with the we passages in Acts, when Paul says, we did this and we did that. First, the we narrative takes Luke to Philippi in Acts 16, where it leaves off until Paul's return to Philippi some four to six years later in chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. The author of Acts, whether Luke or not, surely intends his readers to infer that he had spent these intervening years in Philippi. If so, then as one of Paul's most trusted companions, he had given oversight to that work for some years in the past. Though we cannot be certain that Paul is referring to Luke in our text, it would seem likely that he is or that he is referring to someone who, like Luke, traveled with Paul and was trusted by him to be a servant to the believing community in Philippi. Obviously, when referring to this individual as Paul's yoke fellow, it means that Paul was entrusting into his hands the administrating of what would be necessary to achieve unity by helping Euodia and Suntike to find common ground and to put aside their differences by agreeing on what aligned with the instructions and teachings of Paul himself. In other words, he's telling this individual, if it was Luke or whomever, remind them of what they were taught. Bring them back to the truth. And very so often, when when we've had instances where we've had difficulties in our communities, we discover that very often the people that are at odds with each other are not willing at times, or at one or the other isn't willing to listen to the truth. And this is what then uh, permeates certain aspects of the community where people take sides. And it cannot be overcome until people are willing and ready to submit to the truth of God's word. And that's what Paul is telling this gentleman as he had sent this letter to them that he trusts him to come alongside and solve this issue. He says, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Now Paul gives us further insight on who Judea uh, and Suntica were in relationship to the community of believers at Philippi. He identifies them as sharing his own struggle in the cause of the gospel. Here we see once again that the primary concern Paul has is that of the gospel. The gospel isn't just the beginning. The gospel is the whole story. If we have come to faith in the Messiah Yeshua, then we have come to be his servants, to be his workers, 
And if that's the gospel, then we know also that we are to be like him. Because the gospel intends for us to be born again. Therefore, the gospel is the whole story. And here we learn a very important lesson. When there is dissension within the local gathering of believers, it hinders the gospel. For when those outside of the community who are unbelievers see the demise of the community due to self-defeat, they reckon the message of the gospel to be worthless. You can just hear it. Oh, those people think they're so religious and think they're, you know, uh, they can't even stay together. They can't even get along. Look, what used to be here isn't there anymore. Why would anybody want to join that? How often the enemy uses dissension within the community to dampen the message of the gospel. Even more injurious to the message of the gospel is when those who have been engaged in giving forth the good news end up fighting against each other. What good is a quote-unquote gospel? Is that good news? If it produces infighting, pitting friend against friend, dividing families, and so forth. Such inward struggles that end in division telegraph to the world that the message of Yeshua is no different than the contentions that go on among the factions of any society. It's my own opinion that very often the enemy is very pleased and is even one who begins these kinds of divisions. And as unfortunate as it is, many times believers don't even recognize it. This is a message that is for us in all areas. How do we handle ourselves when there seems to be all the makings of division? Do we take one side and another side? How do, what do we do? We need to use Paul's method, and that is, first of all, not to condemn, but to seek to invite people to get over their differences, to seek God's help, to seek forgiveness where that's required, and to live out who they genuinely say they are, that they are disciples of Yeshua. If Yeshua gave himself to death on a cross so that we might have eternal life, then can we not also humble ourselves and seek to ask forgiveness when that is necessary or if it's necessary, or to give forgiveness when asked of us? Paul goes on to say, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, once again, we really cannot be certain who this Clement was, nor are the others noted as Paul's fellow workers identified. The best we can say is that this Clement, as well as the other workers, were those who remained in Philippi after Paul left, and who had been appointed by Paul to carry out the general work necessary for the Philippian community to strive and maintain its voice for the gospel in that region. This is why I think these two ladies were, as it were, deaconesses or deacons. They were caring for the needs of of, of women and family and so forth and so on. They were working together with others, no doubt, to maintain this community and then they came at odds with each other. And this was Paul's burden. It probably broke his heart to think that such a thriving community could fail over something like this. And then he gives this interesting issue. He says, he talks about Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here Paul mentions the eschatological reality of believers' names being written in the book of life. This undoubtedly rests upon the request of Moses to God while upon the mountain 
with the golden calf incident in place, and Moses intercedes on behalf of wayward Israel for God to forgive their sin and not to blot them out of his book, as we read in Exodus 32, 32-34. But now Moses prays to God, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. So those who seek no forgiveness have no name written in that book. Those who seek the true repentance before God and forgiveness of sins are forever written in the book of life and could never be erased from it. This tells us that from Paul's perspective, even though Yodia and Suntike were causing division within the Philippian community, their names were still written in the book of life. This emphasizes an important point, and it is this. Even true believers in Yeshua can, in their disobedience to the very leading of the Spirit, bring about division within the body of Messiah by their self-centered unwillingness to submit to the Scriptures as well as to the Spirit's leading in its application to community life. So I think we have a very important lesson in these first three verses of chapter 4. It is to examine ourselves and to recognize that we have a privilege and a great honor and a great responsibility to humbly live within our communities for the sake of uh, the good of the whole and not to allow the enemy to start division between us and allow that to infest the whole community. Okay, well, that is where we'll end for tonight. Thank you for coming, and uh, look forward to being with you again next week, Lord willing, as we continue our study in this epistle of Paul to the Philippians. Shalom, and I trust you'll have a productive and good week.